Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So when I read a story in the Bible, I often try to insert myself into the narrative. I survey the story and ask, whose voices are being heard? Whose voices are not being heard? Who is silently absent from this story altogether? I then try to hone in on a particular character. Who is it that I identify with in this story? If I were in their shoes, how would I react to this situation? I suggest that you try this method of reading scripture someday. It helps bring the story to life. By stepping into the story as one of the characters, often you catch a glimpse of a new detail or see things from a new angle than before. I found myself doing this with our gospel lesson today. The occurrence of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only story to appear in all four Gospels. It's a beloved story in our Christian narrative. And I was excited to see what new insights I might find in this familiar tale. So let's take a look at the text. There's a whole cast of characters to choose from. We find ourselves on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is coming from Capernaum, where he's just brought back to life the son of a Roman official. He's also healed a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. So do I relate to Jesus in this story? Certainly not. I don't even know what that would say about my ego if I tried. So let's keep reading. A crowd has begun to follow Jesus. They're waiting. They're hoping to see another sign from the one that they hear can turn water into wine, who can heal the sick, who can bring the dead back to life. Jesus was always a pastor running away from his congregation, so he decides to retreat up a mountain and sit with his disciples. Take a rest, because Passover is just around the corner. He hasn't been gone for a moment, and he finds that the crowd has in fact followed him up the mountain. They don't seem to take a hint very well. Now I imagine in this crowd there is a lot of energy. Everything is heightened. To get a size, to get a sense of the size of the crowd, 5,000 people is about the same number of people as the freshmen, sophomore, and junior classes at Harvard combined. This is no small gathering. Some people have come because they are eagerly anticipating Jesus' next miracle. Some are merely curious to see what all of this commotion is about. Others are skeptical about what rumors they have heard. 
They are there to disprove that Jesus is actually a miracle worker. Others have been dragged there by their friends. They honestly don't really care about what's going on. But there's a frenzy of activity. I imagine that it's something like waiting for the headliner at a rock concert to strike the first chord. But I'm not sure that I find my entrance into this narrative in the midst of this chaotic crowd. Jesus then asks the disciples, where are we to buy bread for all of these people to eat? Philip hesitantly replies, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to even get a little. Andrew, being slightly more optimistic than Philip, but still uncertain of how to answer Jesus' question, says, there's a boy here who has five loaves of bread and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Now these are very basic and practical questions that I know I would be asking myself if I found myself in their circumstance. There actually are a few ways that I relate to the disciples here. First, the disciples are quite literal in their answers of Jesus' question about how they're going to feed this multitude of people. I would have answered Jesus' question in a very similar way because I also am a very literal person. The nuances and subtleties of poetry are often lost on me. I don't do well with parables or allegories or metaphors. I want people's words to match their intentions. So if Jesus asked, how are we going to feed a crowd of 5,000, I'd be making mental calculations about the number of fish that would be needed and the number of loaves that would be needed. But that's also not including the plates and the cups and the utensils. Oh, and the blankets that people are going to need to sit on. And then there's music that people are going to have to listen to. And then what about games? People need to be entertained. What about games for people to play? I would have completely missed the point of Jesus' question. Second, I see the disciples being overwhelmed and yet also being called upon to do a very large and important task. I see this as something that many of our graduating students can relate to. I had the privilege of participating in commencement last year. I'll never forget sitting on the stage overlooking tertiary theater. It was a remarkable and exhilarating day. Looking over, surveying the sea of caps and gowns that filled Harvard Yard. But what struck me most about that day was the tone of the ceremony. One person opened his speech with the line, it is highly likely that there is a future president in our midst today. There was the expectation that those graduating had a great responsibility to use their privilege of a Harvard education to make a positive impact in the world. The question was not whether they would use this privilege, but how they would use this privilege. A subtle but important difference. 
as the Apostle Luke observed, from everyone to whom much has been given, much is required. And from one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. This is quite a daunting charge to be given. I can see the disciples feeling similarly intimidated because much is being asked of them and Jesus expects them to arise to the occasion. Third, I see the disciples are, being, are expected to do something when it's being thrown at them and they're supposed to take it all in stride. Despite the seemingly impossible task, the disciples believe that they are supposed to make it happen without exactly knowing how they're going to do it. I'm in the stage of life where many of my friends are beginning to have children. More than one of them has told me how surreal it is to leave the hospital after the birth of their firstborn. One friend has a hilarious tale about how it took her and her husband over 20 minutes to figure out how to install the car seat. Both of them have PhDs. These new parents have the impossible responsibility of caring for this new life. Many of them feel like they don't have the slightest idea of what they're doing. So when the disciples hear Jesus ask, where are we going to buy bread for these people to eat? No wonder they are literal, overwhelmed, and anxious about this daunting and seemingly impossible task at hand. But the disciples are too caught up in the logistics and the details. They miss what Jesus is really looking for. But can we blame them? Would we be any more astute ourselves? The disciples are just students. So doesn't it make sense that we can relate to them? Because in matters related to God, none of us are experts. I'm quite certain Jesus wasn't interested in a headcount. The question that Jesus is asking is not a quantitative one, but a searching one. He's looking for an expression of trust from the disciples. It doesn't matter if there are five loaves of bread and two fish, or 500 loaves of bread and 200 fish. Perhaps a better response to Jesus's question would be, there's enough. There is plenty of fish and bread to go around. We have enough to go around. We have plenty to share. When Jesus asked, how many loaves do you have? The temptation is for many of us to look at what we have and say, not much of anything, just five loaves and two fish, not enough time, not enough money, not enough influence, certainly not enough to do all that you're asking me to do, not enough. But what Jesus says in essence is, just offer it. It is not only when you offer what you have that everyone will be fed. It is enough. 
It is more than enough. We might call this approach to life as a theology of abundance. Whether it is manna that appears in the wilderness to feed the people of Israel, or bread and fish multiplied in the desert to feed the followers of Jesus, a theology of abundance affirms that there is plenty to go around, more than enough to meet our needs through God's generosity. The disciples' reactions, however, reveal that they are more inclined towards a theology of scarcity. They assume, they assume that there will not be enough to meet the needs of all of these people. Individuals who approach life this way assume that there's never enough to go around. They protect whatever they have out of fear and self-concern. This view assumes that life is a zero-sum game, that what is given to one person, another person will be deprived of. It is a theology of scarcity that I often see at play in my own life. In the hyper-competitive environment such as Harvard, it's not hard to feel that the accomplishments of someone else diminish your own. A theology of abundance or scarcity, however, is not based on actual scarcity or abundance. It's a matter of perception, not reality. How interesting that often a theology of scarcity is espoused from a place of abundance. The strange thing is that we are made to feel like we have so little when we have so much. So why is this theology of abundance so unnerving to us? Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann offers a possible explanation. Everywhere Jesus goes in the world, it's rearranged. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are freed from debt. Jesus left ordinary people dazzled, amazed, and grateful. He left powerful people angry and upset because every time he performed a wonder, they lost a little of their clout. The wonders of the new age of the coming of God's kingdom may scandalize and upset us. They dazzle us, but they also make us nervous. The people of God need pastoral help in processing this ambivalent sense of both deeply yearning for God's new creation and deeply fearing it. So what does it take to live according to a theology of abundance? Well, I think it begins with a tremendous amount of trust. Placing trust in God and God's generosity. There's a confidence that God will provide, even in the face of the most impossible, seemingly impossible of circumstances. It also includes the trust of one another. 
A theology of abundance means you cannot just do your own thing or take care of your own people. You choose to live in community, to love and care for your neighbor, whoever your neighbor might be. You become bound by your love of, and even trust in, God and humanity. Please pray with me. God, may we fully put our trust in you and in our neighbors, even when we are overwhelmed and daunted by the seemingly impossible. Give us the confidence that we have more than enough to go around. Give us the audacity to share what we do have abundantly. Help us to find ways to be signs of your presence in this world. Amen.